I can start, sorry. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this session about the economy of well-being. Uh, my name is Lina Kaisa-Munkkunen, and I come from Finland, the Finnish Institute for Health and Welfare. And the session is organized by the Ministry of Social Affairs and Health, Finland. Today, we are discussing uh, the economy of well-being, and the idea is to discuss about the concept. I don't know if everybody is already familiar with the concept, but uh, our, uh, we're hoping to sort of shed some, some light on what economy of well-being is all about, and also to give you practical examples how we can actually implement that kind of a concept that also has a really broad uh, um, scope. We will start with the scene-setting keynote by uh, our permanent secretary, Velimikkoniemi uh, from the Ministry of Social Affairs and Health uh, Finland, and he will sort of set the stage for all of us, and after that we have a few more interventions from our dis distinguished panelists uh, here on site and online, and uh, after that we are going to discuss uh, with the panel. Um, for you, we also want you to be involved and interactive, and that's why I would uh, ask you to log on to Slido and use the hashtag Luna to uh, log into the discussion of this session and also the polling questions we will have for you this morning. But now I would like to welcome our permanent secretary, Veli Mikkoniemi from Helsinki, to give us the first keynote. The floor is yours, Veli Mikko. You can start your keynote now. We are a slow nation, we Finns. <laughs> I think he doesn't hear, no? I don't think he Maybe. hears anything. Julia? Is there a problem? Ah, hey, good point. Just a moment. It's mindfulness meditation, I've been told. Yes. Let's do this, everyone. <laughs> if there's a problem with the connection, we can also uh, change so that the Chris Brown can start uh, with her to uh, talk, if it's okay. Okay, so um, it's, it's not a good session if we don't have some technical problems. We will change the program so that you, you will also stay awake. And um, we will have Chris Brown from WHO Venice office to provide us the first uh, talk on the concept of the economy of well-being. Chris, can you hear us? I can hear you indeed. Can you hear me? Yes. Lovely. The Fantastic. floor is yours. Okay, that's lovely. Um, well, I'm delighted to be uh, joining you, even if virtually today. My colleague uh, Amanda Schreiweis from the Venice office is with you. I wanted to really just start off by telling a story about why we're here and talking about well-being economy. So when we get up in the morning, how well we feel depends on if we feel safe in our homes and in the communities we live. If we have people in our lives to celebrate our successes with, to ask for help when we need it, 
and who need us in their lives to do the same. If we have a purpose for our day, such a decent job that we love with decent wages, training and learning that interests us, volunteering in our neighbourhoods, participating in activities that inspire us um, and feel uh, involved in issues we feel connected to, this makes a difference to our well-being. However, in thinking about the current situation, if we wake up worried about debt, facing long hours for little pay, exposed to discrimination, fearful of violence or the threat of being homeless, and with no one who needs us or to ask for help, our mental health and our well-being suffers, our physical health also. This also has a negative impact on the economy, on the cohesion of society, and on our willingness to engage in sustainable use of natural resources. So this basically is bringing to the forefront the shift to put well-being at the centre of development and economies. Um, but you can see from that real life story, actually, the complexity of the issue. They can't be resolved by a single policy or sector on their own. There's also at the same time now a drive to harness resources to deliver on development and well-being goals, building on the synergies and the cumulative effects. And for that, we need cooperative mechanisms of governance and financing. And at the same time, in parallel to that, we have concerns over the resilience of public systems, economies and natural resources. Now, what's really interesting there, the, the kind of way this is being taken forward is there's now a lot of multi-dimensional methods, which are metrics beyond GDP. GDP is an important measure, but on its own, it's not enough. What's needed really is other measures that capture things like trust, security, uh, resilience, cohesion, stability in society, democracy, civic participation, equality, equal opportunities, sustainable use of natural resources. So these are the kind of indicators that are finding their way into multidimensional methods of looking at well-being. And we have, for example, dashboards, OECD and Eurostat quality of life indicator framework, and they allow us to uh, give a weighting to different uh, indicators and to compare and contrast. Aggregate indices such as the WHO mental health index and new metrics beyond GDP such as human development index, the genuine progress indicator. These are ways that countries are shifting to measuring well-being. But, and this is really important for us in a health community, in these multidimensional indices, we don't see good indicators, strong indicators, regular indicators of health systems, public health policies, healthy life expectancy, health equity. What does that really mean? It means that there's a risk that health, health policies, public health, health as an outcome, health as an input, is undervalued, underestimated, under-provisioned in investment around well-being and the economy. And secondly, it also risks health continuing to be seen as a cost and an expense, not a vital uh, contributor, uh, co-producer of development and recovery. So this takes us to the need to look at measuring and including both co-benefits 
Healthco benefits to other development and wellbeing goals and including them in these multidimensional indicators. So I'd like to give maybe just three quick examples now of that. And you can see on this slide here that we put health in the center. In reality, in a wellbeing framework, health would be one of the other petals with development, sustainability and wellbeing in the middle. So if we measure co-benefit from health, it allows us to, the direct benefit allows us to capture health in the wellbeing economy. That means direct impact on development priorities. Let me give you an example. Uh, in Ireland, men's health uh, is uh, particularly low in terms of healthy life expectancy, early uh, uh, life uh, limiting illness um, ability not to participate in life, uh, poor mental health, poor social health, poor health seeking behaviour. So the Irish government developed a mental health strategy with a new approach to promoting health through the men's health shed. By doing this, providing in a different way, not only was it improving the mental health and the well-being prevention and check, it delivered other co-benefits that were important to development, uh, the development agenda in Ireland, and that was preventing earlier exit from the labour market, improving reskilling for new employment, building a sense of agency, which for those who have been long-term unemployed is really important, so sustaining participation in society, reducing inequities between the bottom 20% and the middle, um, and building social relations. So what we see here, a health intervention, by looking at quantifying the co-benefit, we see the flows, not just the gains for the health, but to economic, social, well-being outcomes. But in fact, health is also a co-producer of development outcomes. So let me give you another example. If we look at now the situation around employment, income and livelihood, active labour market programmes, those that include on-the-job training, income support while seeking employment, mentoring, as well as uh, counselling support, occupational health, using digital tools to support agency and confidence building and healthy, um, health literacy. These together, with the other interventions, deliver more sustained improvement for economic well-being, participation in the labour market, uh, individual poverty reduction risk, as well as a sense of social cohesion from being part of society. Now, those labour market policies can be produced without the active part, with the health part of it, but they're not as effective and the gains aren't sustainable. So by quantifying the co-benefits of health being part of those active labour market policies, we can show that health not only contributes to achieving them, but it actually is important for sustaining impact. When we look at much broader how health is part of more wider development, by quantifying the co-benefits, we can make visible the bigger role of well-being capital and health within that. So let me give you an example. Uh, in a very deprived uh, area uh, in the north of England, which reflects many areas across Europe, Preston, there was a, a decision by the local council to bring all the actors around the table to keep 10% of the production and spend, whether that be health systems, uh, labour, environment, uh, research, 
in the community. This contributed to local wealth building, where health was a part of it. And in fact, by the health sector quantifying its social and economic impact in terms of its jobs, research, training, human capital, uh, gender equity, it was able to show that it was actually one of the most important sectors in that local economy for regeneration. What it lent to was more development in that area, inward investment, better jobs, higher human capital, also better mental health and higher trust in local government and more cooperative ways of working. So by quantifying and showing health within the wellbeing economy, which is missing, we prevent some of these big challenges. So what have we actually learned from this analysis? What we've learned is that when countries have an increased focus on health and wellbeing uh, in the economy, and they want to make it sustainable. These multidimensional indices quantifying the co-benefits have got to be linked to fiscal plans and annual budgets. So for example, in Wales, the success over more than 15 years of the foundational economy that has held as a key part of it has ensured ongoing investment in wellbeing, health systems and public health policies. And that's in the Future Generations Act. In Scotland performs the same. And it's not just the public sector that's shifting to wellbeing and these fiscal policies and showing the co-benefits. So for example, private sector like Mondragon, which uses, uses owner um, employee owned companies and participatory forms of management, showing much, much better health returns much, much better profit, much, much better trust and social cohesion in the area. And actually, in the 2008 crisis and more recently, showed that it was a much more um, sustainable model for fiscal and economic resilience during crisis. And then um, what we see here is, if I go to the next slide, just to summarise. Chris, if you can do the summary just really yeah. in 30 seconds, Quickly. please. Thank you. I will. So basically, this is why countries are shifting to the wellbeing economy. So we see that here from Finland, it's the foundation for just the equal climate-friendly society. The Minister of Health and Social Services in Wales say it's a way of showing that health is not an economic drain, but essential for employment, income and development. Local governments are showing that it's important as quality of life is important in itself, but it's really important for evening out social differences in fair societies. And the Minister of Finance of North Macedonia says that without investing in health and the co-benefits, we don't reap and get the recovery and for a sustainable economy. And if you would like to know more about our work, we'd like to invite you to the High Level European Forum on Health and the Wellbeing Economy. First and the second of March in UN City in Copenhagen next year, showing why and how countries, development organisations are shifting to economies of well-being to create healthy, resilient, and fairer societies. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I think we can keep her applause. I think this was a really nice introduction to the concept of the economy of well-being. And now I, uh, at least. Uh, I heard that Velimikko is hearing us now. Are you there, Velimikko?
We no cannot hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry? Uh, uh, okay, you do you hear me now? Yes, yes. perfect. Welcome. <laughs> I think we, this Thank is you. the Thank success. And so, could all, you yes. see my slides as well? Not yet. Not yet. But uh, next we will hear our permanent secretary from the minist uh, Finnish um, Minister of Social Affairs and Health um, to give another sort of scene-setting talk uh, for the session. And uh, after that, I'm going to give the floor to my co-moderator, Joseph Figueras, who will also activate you in the audience. So please, Veli Mikko. Thank you very much, and apologies about uh, technical problems uh, coming from far north. Uh, you apparently don't see my slides even at, at now. Okay, Velimiko, we cannot hear you, uh, see your slides, but uh, the organizers can share them. You just have to say when you want us to change the slide. Okay, okay, but please put the slides on. And very much good um, good morning, everybody. My name is Velimiko uh, Niemi. I'm permanent secretary from the Finnish Ministry of Social Affairs and Health, and uh, it's my honor to be here uh, to to introduce uh, this concept on economy of well-being, which already Chris Brown very uh, nicely uh, put in, in, in a very good examples uh, how, to, how it will be framed in, in health policies in overall. But uh, I would introduce you a bit more uh, broader uh, aspect on the economy of uh, well-being uh, and, and why we are focusing on economy of well-being. So could I have the second slide, please? Uh, so, uh, we are living in a, a very dangerous world today, and we have uh, long-term but also acute challenges uh, with us. I, I need not to repeat uh, all, of, of, all of this. We are all familiar with these uh, questions. And then the question comes that uh, how do these uh, things affect our policies, be it health policies or, or social welfare policies or education policies. And uh, there is clearly uh, many connections. Uh, but the main connection, um, or let's say the strongest connection between uh, well-being policies and let's say the policies in, in general are often financial, they are fiscal connections. And that has been clearly demonstrated uh, many times that uh, indicators for economic growth are not perfect and even not uh, necessarily uh, giving the right picture of the well-being of people. And uh, that is a fact. But then the question is, that how does this, what does this mean? And there we got uh, bad examples, uh, for example, uh, during the recession after the financial crisis in 2008. And that led many in international institutions, uh, for example, World Bank or OECD, to analyze uh, what happened. And there was clearly shown a, a, a connection between 
uh, economies and, and well-being policies in a way that if we drastically cut financing of, of well-being policies that led to a long-term uh, effects which hampered the economic growth, the, the, uh, how countries could uh, recover from the financial crisis. So the more bluntly said, uh, the, the more cut was done, the slower was the recovery from, from recess. And that led to uh, many papers describing what are the elements of, of this kind of, of connection. And the main message there was that there is clearly an interconnection between uh, economies and, and well-being policies. And that people and policymakers should be aware of these interconnections. And they should strategic, strategically uh, take measures which take, uh, take uh, uh, on board both elements, both economy and, and well-being policies. So the economy policymakers must know what happens at the, at the, the well-being uh, sector, but also the well-being sector must be aware of what happens in, in the economy, of course. So uh, this, this was clearly said more, more than uh, 10 years ago, and thereafter uh, many ways to practically implement this approach has been developed in, in several countries, and the common nominator has been the term economy of well-being or well-being economy. Uh, good good uh, chart has as many names as it, it has been said. But there are also identified uh, common challenges to, to get this approach, and, and one, one of them being that we in administrations, we tend to work in kind of silos. We don't cooperate. We don't have a holistic approach to, to issues. And why, that, why is that? That's often because we don't share the same uh, knowledge base. We don't share the same data. People in, in the economy sector don't uh, understand our data on well-being and, and vice versa. So that has led to more concrete steps towards uh, economy of well-being. And the next slide, please. Uh, why Finland has been kind of a promoter uh, of, on economy of well-being? Well, and uh, there is often a question, what's new in, in this uh, way of thinking in the economy of well-being? We, everyone knows that in, in, in many Nordic countries we have had strong policies on, on welfare sector and, and we can speak about Nordic welfare model. So the question is that is this kind of a new version of, of Nordic welfare model? And I, I should say uh, just in the beginning that uh, that's not the case. Uh, Nordic welfare model is, is one, one issue, but economy of well-being is, is much more uh, on the board in a way. We also uh, have provided uh, very much on the health in all policies approach. And uh, I could say that the economy of well-being is uh, building on that kind of approach where we have already this uh, multi-dimensional uh, horizontal approach to, to health. And of course, uh, global questions which have been uh, coming up very much, uh, they have impact here. Uh, we have been working on global health security and, and taking on board the, un, the one health approach. So uh, anyhow, we need. We have uh, realized that that we need to to push 
this discussion also on, on international fora and, and therefore when we had the opportunity to have the uh, presidency of the European Union in, in fall uh, 2019, uh, we uh, suggested and, and all member states adopted the council conclusions on the economy of well-being. So uh, that is kind of a basic paper for, for all EU countries to promote economy of well-being uh, thinking and its structures. And next slide, please. Uh, so uh, how to practically implement uh, economy of well-being, uh, what we have done here in Finland so far is that uh, we have uh, find it very important that we work uh, closely together with uh, sustainability questions so uh, we are pro producing a government sustainability roadmap with all the three elements uh, there, social, economic and ecological sustainability. And of course, the relation between social and economic in particular, particular but also social and ecological are uh, issues which are included in economy of well-being thinking. We have some structures and we are preparing our uh, national uh, plan for uh, how to implement economy of well-being, but we are also promoting discussion at the international fora, uh, establishing an international high-level group on the economy of uh, well-being. So there is a lot uh, of uh, going on and, and you can you can uh, look on, on, you heard already excellent presentation from WHO and, and for example, this well-being economic governments, we go uh, network is, is kind of a international uh, framework for our work. Next slide, please. And this is just to show that, that we are currently preparing our uh, national roadmap here, an action plan, and then we could go to conclusions. So uh, uh, when speaking about the economy of well-being and the relation between economies where it uh, national economies, but also speaking about the private economies. Uh, what, what comes very much up is uh, to find out that, uh, that putting money on, on health education, uh, social protection or, or issues like gender equality, they are investments uh, which should be analyzed and uh, understood like other financial investments. And that makes a position for us working in the well-being sector to, let's say, to raise our voice and, and get more understanding or on our needs. But there we must also be able then to demonstrate what are the results of all these investments. And there we have to be on our, on our uh, we have still a lot to develop. We have need to, to have better tools to understand what are the real uh, achievements on when the well-being sector. And therefore, we need these structures, we need to cooperate with uh, many other sectors, we need to have a good economists working uh, with us, and uh, therefore uh, this needs a very strong systemic uh, approach, which is which could be done in, in many different levels. Uh, it, it's, of course, important to make it at government level, but it's also an approach which is applicable at regional and local 
decision-making levels. So I think uh, I will stop here. This is my, my introduction, and uh, I'm joining the, the, the discussion here. You will have, have a nice picture to sum, summing up what I tried to explain. But thank you very much. Thank you very much, Valimiko. Actually, uh, by accident, by default, but I think the two presentations beautifully complemented each other. Uh, I think Valimiko gave a more uh, a practical approach uh, to uh, government to introduce the economy of well-being across different sectors. I particularly like, uh, Valimiko, one slide that you presented quickly, uh, where you explain how to develop that in Finland. You go from agreeing on a definition, an issue I'm going to talk in a minute now. I'll get you to vote on it. Secondly, the knowledge base, the decision-making, and the tools. The knowledge base, the kinds of indicators we've been talking about. We'll be talking more about that later on. A decision-making framework, a key element has always been there, also for health in all policies, and the tools, the budget tools, to be able to reallocate resources, non-light, uh, in line with fiscal criteria, economic criteria, but well-being criteria, which then, as you said, Valimiko, has a positive virtue cycle into economic growth. That's the theory. Thank you, thank you, Finland colleagues, uh, to allow me now to put these questions, and I've been asked on purpose to be a bit devil's advocate and see whether we sold that to you here and online. So can I have the first voting question, please? Thank you. So we'll see whether Velimiko they have bought it or not. Will the economy of well-being result in cross-sectoral decision-making, which is what we really want, with citizens' well-being at its core? Choose two of the following. I, perhaps you can cheat and do more, but you shouldn't cheat, okay? Just two, okay? Yes, indeed. I want lots of those today. Yes, but only if the evidence and indicators are in place. Evidence, evidence. How much evidence we need? You'll tell me. Okay? Evidence and indicators. This idea that, uh, you know, how long has it been sort of uh, when Robert Kennedy said, GDP measures everything but what really matters to society? Or the Sarkozy Commission tried to find alternatives. We still haven't found a good index better than GDP. Well, we found many, but still our economic actors love the GDP. Otto, will you agree with that in a minute? I'll ask you then later. Yes. But only if governance frameworks are in place. It's all very nice, but do we have a framework to work together on the tools? No, finance actors will never prioritize well-being over economic indicators. Forget it. That's impossible. That's what I heard, from, heard here in Gastein five years ago from the president of the European Investment Bank. No, this is about all wine in new bottles. This is health in all policies. I'll ask you that in a minute, Caroline. Is it all wine is held in all policies? Prepare for that. No, because energy security and crisis preparedness dominates the agenda. Forget it. I mean, no one cares about well-being. Finally, I don't know. So those of you who really are a bit skeptical, you don't know, but you still have to say something else. So we're cheating a bit, right? You know, Alina Kaiser with this. So we ask you to say, I don't know, but something else. Okay, you vote. I'll try to influence the vote as much as possible, finish colleagues, and get lots of yes indeed. Let's go, results, please. Oh, well, not bad. Not bad. Caroline, concentrate there. Yes, but only if governance frameworks are in place. 
Okay, Evans are indicators, that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted a debate in these two areas. We pre-prepared that. We haven't messed up with the votes, I promise, but we were hoping that. No, because energy security, yesterday we talked about the permacrisis indeed. Well, so finance actors will never bring us well-being, only 18%. Lots of optimists today. I want a more, more old wine in new bottles, so Caroline can demonstrate that's not the case. Caroline, you know, I don't need you anymore now. <laughs> and only 9% I don't know. Velimico, they really, really understood you and Chris, because only 10% I don't know. That's really beautiful. Caroline, and then Velimico, so what does that mean? What, what do you think? Is it all wine? I, I mean, I cannot ask you that now, although I wanted to ask you that, because only 11% think that uh, economic well-being is not held in all policies. Wonderful. We want to comment on this. Yes, Are you happy? Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to see this, and I do indeed think that economy of well-being is a very inspiring concept. It's a bit vague concept, which means that it brings many sectors together. It's better in that sense that only health as an overarching concept. So it is inspiring, and uh, we all know that economy and well-being are two sides of the same coin. So I do think that finance actors can be convinced. Uh, and I do like of this concept that it gives very much uh, in, uh, a vision of hope. Uh, it's so much doom and gloom out there with all of these crises. And when I talk to young people uh, in, in Belgium recently about their, their thinking of the future of the EU, they told me that they want EU leaders above all to, to radiate like a vision of hope. And I do think that the economy of well-being well uh, well does that. And that is also what's now reflected in the, in the outcomes of this poll. So you think we progress over health in all policies because we do, did have lots of challenges with health in all policies over the years. So you think that adds something new? Yes. Is it the yes. decision making? Is it the data? Is that the indicators of well-being that makes a difference? You were going to ask me that question later, but do you oh, want really? me to? Oh, really? Well, sorry. <laughs> I can do that. I can never <laughs> follow script, uh, Caroline. I apologize. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, indeed, uh, I think in three ways, the economy of well-being is very different than uh, health and all policies. Uh, first of all, uh, it uh, is much more uh, um, preaching for a paradigm change. It is changing uh, for the economy, it's changing economic sustainability, uh, changing for uh, societal uh, sustainability and for environmental sustainability. Perfect. And I think that is uh, the paradigm change and this vision, I think that is very different from uh, health and we'll, com we'll come back to that. Yeah. We'll come back to these two key elements. Velimiko, can I get you back, please? What, are you happy with these results? Because you were worried before uh, being here in Gastein about how people will understand it. You must be happy. Very few say I do not know. So the Finnish presidency uh, two years ago and all the work you've been doing is really having an impact, Velimiko. We don't hear you. You need to unmute. Uh, I should. Yes, we hear you now. Go ahead. Unmuted. Okay, great. So, uh, of course, I'm, I'm happy, but I, I expect that uh, the audience wants to hear some more, some more uh, details and, and, and let's yes. get uh, uh, discussing. But just to say that uh, why I believe that uh, economic well-being is kind of a very interesting approach is, of course, that uh, first of all, we need these new, uh, new glasses or the, the world is at the situation where the old uh, ways of, of uh, explaining things don't, don't work and, and we need new approaches. So there is a, this time is right. And the, the, the second 
aspect is that uh, linked to the that previous that, that we need tools to speak of the language of new generations. And, and we know that uh, for them, for example, ecological sustainability is something much, much uh, more serious than, than for us a bit older ones. And, and we need things to try to combine this. And, and their economy of well-being gives some tools and, and many tools to interlinkage uh, uh, different uh, parts of sustainability. And, uh, and uh, OK, I don't say any, anything more at that. Uh, but I, I hope that you, you keep in, in mind also this generation shift. That, that's a very key important point and indeed the point of tools we want to hear more about the tools from our colleagues here which fits beautifully with the next question that we want uh, we would like you to vote on we're going to be moving now from the next one uh, yes the health co-benefits so uh, Chris has given us an excellent presentation about the concept of co-benefits saying is not only health co-benefits to other sectors but other sectors to health as well. And so it's the multi-sectoral idea of co-benefits. But now, as we are in a health conference, I'd like you to concentrate on the health co-benefits. Some of us wrote recently a paper in The Lancet, which you should read, which we talk from health in all policies to health for all policies. What health can do for societal security, cohesion. Yesterday, with the Minister of Health of Austria and others, we had a session talking about this whole health co-benefits. So as uh, 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 Chris presented beautifully, health and productivity, uh, health uh, from the health policies towards the environment with green hospitals and so on and so forth. So that uh, gives me a background for this question now. Do the health co-benefits health for other policies? Uh, is it a way to strengthen ourselves finally once and for all? on e uh, economy of well-being dimensions such as employment, education, or gender equity, support increasing investment on health policies. Geistein has been talking about investing on health and making the case for investing on health. Please choose two of the following options. Again, they're long, but I think it helps for us to concentrate on the subject. Yes, indeed, the really uh, fundamentalist believers, I look, most of them, I like, have lots of, lots of those here, yes, it may, it may, but only if we're able to demonstrate, quality, quantify, 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 like the economists like us to do, the financial actors, the co-benefits. What are the actual health co-benefits for the environment, for education? Can we measure them? Can we look at the economics of those? We're trying to do that now, actually, in our group. Yes, it may, but only if we demonstrate their impact on economic growth. Again, we quantify them and then the measure of the impact on economic growth. No, investment can only be justified for its impact on health itself. Some puristics say health per se. You don't need to show economic growth. We do that for health. That's enough. Good point as well. No, investment should be on intersectoral health determinants. Why investing on health when investing on education and other areas will have more impact on health? Why you health people always ask for so much money? Uh, no, health spending will always be seen as cost, never investment, uh, the pessimists here, and those who say it's hard to tell, we don't know. I took a bit of time to present those, but I want you to reflect on that because I think it will help us to understand the debates afterwards. So can we have some uh, results? How many fundamentalists I get? Okay, yes, yes indeed, 24%, good. Quantify co-benefits, going right in your direction, Otto. 
quantify, quantify, thank you. It may be, but only if we demonstrate their impact on economic growth. Excellent. Yes, indeed, it's hard to tell. No health spending. Good. So the, the debate has changed in Gashstein. The debate has, that's very good. <laughs> Never as an investment. No investment should be on intersectional health determinants. No investment can only be justified for impacts on health in itself. Only 2%. Years ago, if I say that in plenary, people will get up and say, you always talk about economics. No, look, only 2% now. Excellent. So I'm going to have now Matthias. Matthias, you're in the room. I'll give you a privilege now. Uh, can we quantify the co-benefits? Can we demonstrate the impact on economic growth? You've been doing a lot of work on health and SDGs, I believe. Well, there are actually two steps. The first step is identifying the, the health benefits and the co-benefits. And actually, Gastein has the, done a great job in doing this. I was yesterday attending a session on catastrophic household costs by co-payment. And it was clear if we, if we close the coverage gap, if we invest into health coverage, you know, we would also invest in fighting poverty. So we have the positive health effect because the people get the treatment, but we also would reduce uh, coverage. We had a workshop on the health workforce, and almost everybody in one of the polls agreed on investing in working conditions. We know that working conditions in many countries are terrible for health workers, in particular in uh, hospitals, but also in, in long-term care, and we would improve the working conditions, the labor market, equity, even equity for, for, for health works. So we would have the health benefit that we improve access to services because we have enough health workers there and at the same time strengthen equity. So we have both sides. Oh, we had yesterday in one of the workshops a discussion on the low-hanging fruit. We all know that the young generation has been massively affected by the lockdowns, uh, by COVID-19. Mental health is a big, big issue. And it's actually a no-brainer to say, let's invest into mental health for young people and adolescents. That could be actually also, also um, quite, uh, quite popular. And again, we would have here the immediate health effect that the mental health issues would be addressed. You know, But we also have the co-benefits, because healthy students are better students, actually. They have better educational attainment, and most likely they have better labor market chances and better, better um, income chances. So, so it's a win-win situation, so to say. We can, we can identify the causalities you know, between the inputs and the outputs, and that gives us a can little we? bit... Can we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In many cases, we can. But, it's, but it varies. You know? We have some areas... Some areas, and I think education is one of them, where we have a lot of evidence, you know, and others where the evidence is very, very thin, actually. But still, is no evidence really an excuse for inaction? I, I doubt it. But as I said, we have, we have quite, uh, quite some, some evidence. Perfect. I like that very much. Uh, Chris, you're online very, very briefly because we're running very late. And like you, I talk too much. So can you get just one comment on these results? From Chris. Thanks, Joseph. Um, I think, honestly, for me, the results are not surprising, but I'm very happy. I think uh, the health effects from people working in the health haven't actually maybe recognised some of the shifts that are going on in wider society, governance and politics, which provides a great opportunity for us to demonstrate the co-benefits. Um, I think I would just say one, one comment, two comments, Joseph. It doesn't mean that the health sector continues to ask for money to do the same things. It's not about asking for labs. It's about saying, how are we contributing to well-being and these wider goals? 
what we're already doing, we can quantify those co-benefits. Matthias, great, nice to see some of that evidence there. But it does mean we have to do things differently. It means we might have to look at our policies and deliver services differently. This is what's delivering well-being. So the health sector does have to have a look at how it can better produce well-being with its services, not just asking for more money to do the same things. I think the other thing is, just your other message there about the co-benefits, we're in discussion with banks, with development agencies such as GTZ. They've completely shifted. So maybe you should go back to your colleague of the Central European Bank from five years ago and ask him what he thinks today, because as I understand it, the EC uh, ECFIN has just introduced uh, a policy on uh, distributional impact assessment. And this is going to be super useful for uh, looking at equity and well-being, but only if we have those health uh, indicators in those multi-dimensional uh, mechanisms. That's uh, probably my Thank last you. message. There. Thank you very much. Chris and I disagree slightly on that, as you noticed. I still I know, believe... I st we, we can have our conversation separately, Joseph. Let's no, we can have it in public. The audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. No, I think it's important. It's important to have this the diverse approach to it, to show I still believe that I totally agree with you, Chris, but we still don't see these major economic agencies doing as much as we want. And that's why we need the numbers and the way to make the decisions. But fundamentally, we totally agree. Back to you, uh, Lina, thank to you. the next part of the session. Thank you, and thank you for participating. I would like to remind you that the Slido is open and you can post your questions there. And we have Nicole to summarize them uh, us after the next talk, which will be given by Otto Toivonen, uh, professor in economics uh, from Helsinki, Finland. And now we're moving on to the discussion of, of data and, and how we could actually use data to govern health systems uh, towards, uh, or, or not health systems, apologies, how we could govern uh, our societies uh, towards uh, economy of well-being. And Otto will provide us a case uh, of what they did during the COVID uh, pandemic uh, and, and how they uh, informed the government with uh, multiple data sources. So please, Otto, go ahead. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for being here. I heard that networking went on late uh, yesterday evening and still uh, early on. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to give uh, an outsider's view because I'm, I'm an academic. I'm not uh, working for uh, implementing policies as such. And then at the same time, the viewpoint of, say, uh, a machinist. So the, the uh, presentations we've heard so far have been at the sort of high level, uh, but I'm, I'm going to be showing you what the world looks like from the machine room on, uh, and you'll see what I mean uh, in a short while. So now my clicker doesn't work. Okay, thanks. So uh, to, to set the scene, I, I think what we've heard uh, already today is that uh, there might be a lot of good things in this concept of economy of well-being, but, but to really go from a concept to actual uh, achievements, we have to be able to implement meaningful policies. What do we need for that? Uh, we need a few things. We need to understand what's going on right now. We need to understand what the effect of those policies would be that we're thinking about implementing. And 
these are crucial uh, for going ahead. And I, I should say, Velimikko mentioned that, uh, that uh, even in Finland, or at least in Finland, the government works in silos. Uh, and so even once you understand what the impacts of the policies are, you need a third ingredient, which is the, the uh, ability to implement the policies you want to implement. It's not enough to know what you want to do. You have to be able to implement it. And clearly, there will be obstacles there. And so to get here, to, to have that background to, to think about what we want to do, we need to have data. We need to know what to do with the data. It's not enough to have numbers. Uh, and then once you have moved from data to information to knowledge, you have to package in such a way that the decision makers understand it and uh, act on it. And uh, these are the key ingredients that you should have in the machine room of economy of well-being or any other policy you want to implement. And so I'm going to talk about a case where we try to achieve exactly that. But to set the scene, let me tell you briefly what Finland looked like prior to COVID. So you all have probably the stereotypical view of Finland as a highly organized society, and it's not completely wrong. We have lots of uh, registers. I like to say that the registers have more information on me than my wife knows about me. Uh, it's maybe only a slight exaggeration. The problem is that information is outdated. It's two to three years old at best. What's great about it is that you can access it in a way that uh, preserves everybody's anonymity. So you can't pick me up from the register because you don't know who I am. I'm just one number out of five and a half million. Although things are, ha, were a lot better than they used to be prior to COVID, things were still bad from the point of view of policy making because the data was old, the services were clumsy, they were costly, and they were difficult to implement. Uh, and so the structure prior to COVID was not conducive to use people like me who like to crunch numbers uh, to help uh, decision makers make decisions. And so what happened with COVID, you know, there's always this silver lining even in the darkest cloud. And one of the silver linings in the Finnish COVID cloud was that we could implement something that people just months earlier said is impossible to do. And so uh, this was called the GSC Situation Room. And what happened was Friday the 13th, March 2020, we had a meeting and even we understood that this COVID is a serious thing. We called up the Ministry of Finance and asked, whether, do you need help? They were desperate enough to uh, say that we need even your help. Uh, and uh, the outcome was uh, that we set up something we thought the government would have, namely a situation room where data flows in. It's current, as up to date as it can be, and I'll show you examples. Uh, it's pulled together. It's put in a format that you can actually use for uh, an analysis. And you produce those analyses in a way that the decision makers understand, and you transmit the knowledge to the decision makers, but also to the wider public. Uh, and so that's what we did. And let me show you a few examples. So I'm showing you graphs that we produced at the end of 21. But uh, you should remember that we started in real time. So we put this thing up in four weeks when the normal structure was to take six to 12 months to organize this. And so put yourselves into the shoes of the Finnish government early May 2020 when COVID had just hit. We could show them that, look, the number of furloughed people 
is up here. And not only that, we could break this by gender, age, occupation, whatever you want, but I'm showing you uh, the, the, the graph, so, sorry. The, the blue line is, uh, is uh, 2020, the red line is 2019, which was our comparison point. To show you what happened to Finnish earnings, uh, we could pile up all the wage payments to everybody in Finland with a four-week lag and show what happened to them. And as you can see, in May 2020, there was a hit of 7% compared to 2019. But a very quick recovery, if you look at the nominal ones, we're doing very well. If you look at the real ones, we were back to 2019 by end of 21. Again, I could break this down by whatever you want, region, gender, uh, industry, and so on. To understand how many people got back to work, we had to devise new measures because no such uh, statistics exist. And what we did was we started tracking people who earned, say, at least 1,000 a month or at least 4,000 a month. And let's look at the left-hand side graph. So here you see what happened in 2020, a huge drop, 7% less people earning at least 1,000 euros a month. And we could provide this number in June, end of June 2020. Okay, so with a one-month lag, we could tell the government, look, this is what's been going on. We could also tell them in September that, look, there's been a great recovery from minus seven to minus two only, and so on. Also, if you look at what happened to people earning relatively well, you could see that there was a small dip, but a very quick recovery. And in 21, the number of people earning at least 4,000 a month was plus 10 to 15%. And this we could again break down by whatever you want and provide to the government with a one-month one month lag. To look at the social side, this is the social insurance institution where you file unemployment benefits. Now we have blue 21, uh, red 2020, and green 2019. You can see this huge spike in April when, the COVID, when COVID hit, but you can see it dying out very quickly. We could show, for example, that here in this spike, there were people earning in excess of 100,000 a year. Those people don't get unemployed in regular circumstances. But uh, a relatively large chunk of them did in the early stages of COVID. Now, we might not be so worried about people who earn in excess of 100,000 a year, but it was clearly showing that this is, this is a crisis that affects all parts of the society. Finally, to show you the power of matching data from different sources. Uh, the government didn't know who got uh, COVID, COVID in the first case and how, how was uh, the disease burden distributed according to professions. So we could match information on what's your profession with the likelihood of you having COVID. And this is data from 2020 and you can see, maybe not uh, unexpectedly, nursing, nurses, Health, uh, health professionals, uh, and so on at the top, but also painters and uh, building constru construction workers, car drivers, professions that we wouldn't think uh, are, were necessarily uh, at the greatest risk of, uh, of getting COVID. This type of information allows you to direct your policies to where they have the highest impact. And so, 
what do I think this silver lining in the Finnish COVID cloud demonstrated is that there's huge potential in data that we already collect for entirely different purposes. So the Finnish government isn't collecting data on my income for me to use it in my analysis. It's collecting it to be able to squeeze taxes out of me. And so the extra investment of making it available for policymaking is minuscule compared to the machinery that the tax authority is running to collect taxes. But to make use of this, you have to make that extra investment to get access to those data. You have to hire people like me, like it or not. Uh, people who know what to do with the data. And you have to be able to package it in a way that those who don't day in, day out crunch numbers understand, which is not uh, something that comes natural to people like me. So it's something that needs to be practiced. And then you need cooperation across the parties. And one of the great things about the situation was that it broke the silos of the Finnish government because we matched registry data across different policy fields and we talked to all ministries on a weekly basis. And so I think there's a lot of potential here for very marginal investments. Thank you. Thank you so much for bringing us this really concrete example of and case of, of what you've been doing in, in and with data. And I would like to ask you, Vesna, you have a long experience in working in the government. Uh, what are your thoughts? How could you use this kind of data to, to um, bring economy well-being forward? Or can you? Is this useful? Thank you very much. The first thought was, oh, I would like you to come to Slovenia and work for, with our academia there for us. Uh, because everything you said, you know, resonated to me. And I thought, yeah, this is exactly how it should work. And sometimes it even does. Uh, I'm on that side, you know, to, to be able to use the data to advocate for the policies that we have to implement. And, uh, and data to me uh, uh, is only relevant if I can use them. And sometimes I have to have access to data, and you also uh, spoke a lot about this, in a very short uh, time. So um, it is very important uh, for us at the policy making level to understand where the data are and to, to be able to, uh, to uh, network with all the people that are on the data. And I'm looking there at Martin McKee and he knows that Vesna is really an awful person because she, she's calling him at any time and asking him to support me with the data on, let's say, uh, cannabis uh, or whatever use, <laughs> and I have to have it. No, <laughs> yeah, definitely he's not selling it, but but I need this data as sub because you know there are, there are things happening, and I have to to uh, to tell my minister, you know about what is going on in other countries, about what data tells us of the impact of, for, for example, deregulating something like cannabis and so on. So um, when we speak of data, very often we think of uh, quantitative data. But for, for us at the policy level, uh, many other uh, data and information are more relevant 
people do understand now, I think, that you know, investing in prevention is um, uh, paying off, even financially. Because we have spread it out, it's, it's not an issue anymore. I can, I can say, yeah, but investing in prevention uh, will pay off, even economically, or investing in health. And Chris knows she's, uh, she has really struggled to pass the message in the previous years. It is accepted. You know, but when it comes to policy making, you should know that you know people with other interests are there, and there there is a lot of lobbying going on. So you have to to um, have the right arguments in hand. It's not only the data. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the our right arguments sometimes are international comparisons, but very often are good practices from abroad or good practices within the country also. So it's more information. It's not only data. So with good practices, very often the problem is that we don't measure the impact of those good practices. And when we come uh, to economics of, uh, uh, of health, you know, uh, uh, it is for me, it is, you know, to be able to get uh, uh, financial levels to invest in health policies or health measures or services or whatever. And for this to happen, I have to actually prove efficiency of uh, what we want to do. And the data on, uh, you know, um, the impact in terms of, you know, um, uh, in, in financial impact is seriously important, but most of the time you don't have this data at hand. We all know, you know, that we, if we will improve access for certain group of population to preventive services, that this will have an impact. And there, for example, I'll give you one example. Um, we, uh, some years ago, wanted to, to get some financing from the cohesion funds for uh, to invest in alcohol policy, brief intervention, to invest in some policies, you know, uh, for drug users and so on. So we had to be very clever how to get this money because there was no line in the budget that would be for health. But there was a line in the budget that was for employment. Mm -hmm. So we had to prove that, you know, investing money in uh, brief intervention uh, uh, by doctors and nurses and so on for the people that drink in excess, not yet dependent, you know, will, will contribute to the employment. And this is how it works. But for that, we need to have some data on who actually are the people that are not employed and that they are struggling with employment, you know. And it, it is not um, that difficult to get uh, the connection between, you know, chronic diseases, you know, and people unemployed, or mental health and people unemployed. So it is a matter of, you know, to, to think a little bit out of the box when you try to get investments right, so investments in health. So that is my, that is my, um, uh, my experience, uh, but it, uh, for me, all it works only if I am really well connected uh, and that sometimes is a problem, and you were a little bit speaking of this, you know, that the ministry people who are actually brokering knowledge to the politician's level uh, are sometimes not understanding that their allies are in academia, and they 
feel that academia is like distant and they do their research work, which is, as you said yourself, not at hand when needed, you know? So for, if you understand this, you have to work in advance. You have to be very vocal what could and would be needed so that academia can, uh, can adjust, you know, and provide appropriate uh, data. And academia, as somebody said before, is not only people working with health data. It's people working with social data and to end, it's, only, it's also people that are not even academia, but who are close to the people that have their needs. So these are people, you know, that, uh, for example, NGOs working in the field that understand best what people need, and maybe later on I'll say something on this, because this information is also very important. And what we often forget is we always speak national level, but decisions and the budgets are very often at the municipality level. So if we provide data for decision making, we should make sure that the mayors also get the data, what is going on in, in their municipality. And uh, then things uh, happen at that level too. And these are also very important investments uh, that uh, contribute to the well-being and health. Thank you. Thank you, Vesna, and I, I think you had really important points, and also uh, points about the politics of data, so because in, in the registries we, of course, have just some kind of data, but it, it, we need to be aware what we don't know if we only look at the registers. Do we know everything about the marginalized, marginalized populations and, uh, and, and what kind of other data sources and, and research methods we should use in order to you know, understand the needs of the populations. But you also mentioned the local level, and I would like to uh, ask you, Caroline, um, I, I understand that at local level there are a lot of like interesting and very nice examples of, of implementing economy of well-being in practice, but how could we scale this up, like at national level, at global level even? Uh, yes, uh, at the local level there are uh, an awful lot of good practices uh, being done by communities uh, that really hit the triple win, so good initiatives for health, for the environment and uh, for social inclusions. And we, uh, I think that uh, health authorities at the local level, supported by the national level, need to have strategies how to support these community initiatives, how to uh, make sure that they get some seed monies uh, to help them to evaluate their, uh, their projects and uh, to see how they can be transferred and scale up. And also take away some legal barriers and administrative barriers that often community groups, community groups are facing at the local level. But I wanted to, to highlight here something that uh, I had wanted to say earlier. But <laughs> and I think that um, we have a lot of data, and the data shows that we are not living sustainably, sustainably at all. And the economy of well-being allows us to think differently of our societies. It shows how we uh, shouldn't continue uh, exploiting people and make sure that, uh, that we have a strong social foundation. And also it uh, makes us think how not to exploit nature and how we can uh, stay within the, the planetary li limits of, uh, of our society. So it's, it's about defining the safe operating space for the economy. And uh, that is, I think, a, a key question because we see there's a lot of greed out there, a lot of uh, profit making, 
and, and that is uh, what we need to see how we can make sure that it is uh, not, uh, you know, it's good for, for the planet and for the people. Mm. And I think that is a, is a big uh, challenge and that is the out of the box uh, uh, thinking that you are saying. So how can we have equality economic growth and how can we benefit from actions at the local level uh, up to the national and the European Union level uh, to make sure that we find answers to, to these difficult questions. Because, um, and that is what I also like with the economy of well-being, uh, that it uh, puts forward the, the climate uh, challenges that you have, uh, and that's so different from the health and health policies, which is not sufficiently talking about the climate challenges, because it's threatening our existence, and, uh, and we have to think out of the box how we can really make sure that we tackle that, as well as health and uh, the other uh, uh, objectives that, that we have. Yeah, thank you. I see Chris Brown nodding online. Do you want to uh, bring your thoughts yeah. in the discussion? Yeah, I mean, just a couple of things. I think that um, we need to work on a number of different levels. And I think Caroline really beautifully outlined that. Um, and picking up on what Bethany said, I think we also need to take the public with us. So a review of public um, uh, surveys, uh, opinion surveys have shown that tackling inequalities, the climate change, uh, living in secure societies is top of the public's agenda. So we need to take the public with us and use that. Uh, and that needs to also be the other type of evidence that we bring forward and data that we bring forward to the policy process, just touching what Vesna said. One final thing is, I think the reasons uh, why we don't get some of the shift in terms of the finance and the economy sector is that many of the tools that they're using are based on GDP. So we need to bring forward some of those new tools and scenarios and modeling to work with macroeconomists. And in fact, we've just established a new economics expert group that will be doing that and they're all macroeconomists working with government. That's the first thing. The second thing, if we want to see big shifts, we could really lobby our government uh, and provide the information so that the national accounts include within them well-being indicators and within that health and health equity indicators. That then would drive finance, banks, lenders, economy, development sector to be delivering on those. Obviously, we then need to develop for ourselves some measures. So I think there's some initial thoughts to complement what Caroline has said. Thank you. I, I think Matthias has been silent for a while, so I would like to give you the floor and, and hear your thoughts. So I think what became crystal clear from this session is that governance is actually key, and in particular transparency and accountability. I made a couple of examples which are floating around here in the room and which are floating around in science for quite a while, but they don't make it to the decision-making process. And I was so pleased to see when uh, Veli Miko uh, showed us that there is um, an economy of well-being steering group that is intersectoral, goes across the government, because there's a place, you know, where all the evidence and all the, 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 the data can be discussed and can be discussed ac across the sector. And also, somebody's responsible for this. You know, somebody uh, needs to, to, to justify what, what they are saying. I think that's, that's uh, really great. And actually, today is a very important day because uh, there will be a workshop on the EU global health strategy. The European Union is already an eminent global player with lots of impacts on the well-being of other economies, other countries, you know, 
And now they're making it transparent what it actually is. You know, they're making it clear, and they want to strengthen it. They want to mitigate the negative effects and strengthen the positive effects. And will be open to public, of course. You know, but I think this is the way that accountability and transparency needs to be looked at. And of course, sometimes it's um, uh, routine data with very timely manner. Sometimes it's evidence, comparative, or as you say, very powerful case studies can can also be. One thing which I didn't like to hear is we need to take the public with us. That's for me a bit condescending. And I think actually it's also a governance issue because we should listen to the public and we have strong NGO leaders here that are very vocal. And I hear sometimes from the policymakers, you know, maybe you could be even more vocal. I mean, they say this here in the conference, but <laughs> in, in practice they will not see it exactly. So, uh, but I think we should really think about it also in terms of governance, how we can institutionalize a strong um, uh, civil society. Thank you. Thank Great. you. Thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, that's a very, very good uh, reflection in a room uh, with many NGOs that play a key role uh, of working and uh, reflecting and working with, uh, with the community. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go online very briefly, gave us four questions, which are going to distribute here, but I'm going to ask you. So rather than asking questions, you give answers today as well, because there are as many experts on this side and the other side on the subject. I can see them. So please, uh, Nicole, what's going on down there? Yeah, so initially the discussion was still picking up very, very slowly. Uh, it's a 9 a.m. start after all. Uh, but now questions are starting to roll in. Um, there's been a whole discussion about indicators, so whether European countries are already working together towards developing common indicators that can be used to measure well-being in a more standardized manner, and that could even complement or replace GDP. Um, participants were mentioning quality of life and patient-reported outcomes as potential indicators for that. Um, directly tied into that, we also have questions about what the European Health Union could do in a tangible manner to, to help the implementation of uh, the economy of well-being in the member states, and whether this could also be a priority for upcoming presidencies again. Um, and then, yes, a couple of questions about Finland's experience. Um, which are the key parameters that should be better monitored? And um, we also heard about the steering group, um, which ministries and stakeholders should be at the table when it comes to implementing cross-sectoral approaches. And finally, um, on a larger scale, what can we do to change the perception that we have of economic growth? Perfect, thank you very much. So please reflect on those. And uh, let me start distributing. Velimiko, which ministers you want on your table? Which are the most reluctant ministers that you, you want to bring on your table that want to join you? in the economy of well-being and steering group. That would be a question at the end to wrap up, please, together with others that may come up from the room. Uh, Chris, Matthias, you're talking about indicators and indicators better than GDP. We want to hear more about those. We want to hear more about those. And I want to hear from the room. I can, I'm trying to look at uh, commissioner colleague, uh, commission colleagues here about, but you all should actually tell commission colleagues and the EU what the role should be of the EU in pushing the economy of well-being. Can you imagine directorates together, trade, internal market, growth, health, working together with indicators of well-being at EU level? Wouldn't that be wonderful? And we heard that indeed ECFIN is now looking at some distribution indicators as well. So can we get the European Union a true intersectoral organization, because it has all sectors there, to work together at economy of well-being? Clearly, is one of the areas that Veli Miko were talking the other day, was saying, how do we get 
the member states and the union itself and the commission working in that fashion. So please help me on that one. And indeed, the one billion euro question, how do we change this perception of economic growth and move it to well-being? Okay, you can ask questions as well, but if you give me answers, it's even more fun. And apart from the solution, we heard the best solution of all, Martin, put a Martin McKee in your life, <laughs> and then there's no worry about indicators of evidence, but there's only one Martin McKee for all of you and for all the member states. So I'll go back to how Martin does that, see what we can learn from him at the end. Okay, please. Oh, gosh, don't leave me alone. Oh, thank you. Coffee for you later. <laughs> thank you. Um, hello, everyone. Short ones, eh? Short, short yes, points. I'll be very short. So I'm Louis Lostis. I work for the coalition called All Policies for a Healthy Europe. So as you can imagine, we've been working a lot on this topic. And actually, we're collaborating as well with other uh, organizations, uh, EHFF, Greenpeace, uh, EEB, and others. But is it working? Bring, Don't yeah. tell us what you do. Tell us, is it working? Sorry. No, this is, this is my experience. We've been talking with people from ECFIN, and they tell us, we don't know what to do. Uh, I, have, I, have, I know someone who's been in charge of setting this really? up for the semester, and she told me, I don't know where to find this data. Where is it? And so we need to, well, us, the community, we need to bring this to, to them and bring this as easy as possible for them. Um, and then the other thing is that, you know, working in silo is very much a, you know, it's easy to do and breaking that silo is, is what we need to show to them as much as possible. Because the ECFIM people are not aware that uh, in DG Sante, they're pushing for it and that in DG, uh, you know, in DG AMP, they're also supporting it. So yeah, there's, there's very much this silo approach that needs to be bro Anyone broken. Anyone from Sante or ECFIN here <laughs> that can... Uh, we used to do these sessions actually with ECFIN and Sante. It's not true. They yeah. used to work together, at least before the crisis. But ECFIN... Great possibility. ECFIN, needs ECFIN to be and convinced. Sante and all of you and Martin to tell them about evidence. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. More points, please. I had another hand somewhere. Yes. Very quickly. Okay. I can speak very quickly. My name is Andrea Schmidt, and I wanted to ask um, about accountability, because I think Good. even if we have the indicators and the data that we need, the question is how can you make sure that the sectors, that it's not your own sector, becomes... So are you going to be accountable for the other sector's outcome? Very and good. vice versa. So Excellent. I think this is something... That Belimiko, Vesna, could you think about that a tiny bit in your final remarks? Yes, Elizabeth. Yeah, just perhaps adding to that, my name is Elizabeth Kuiper, speaking for the European Policy Center, where I'm leading the Social Europe and Wellbeing Program. I think for me it's key from what I heard this morning, and many thanks to everyone, is our change in definition of economic growth. Because if we do not convince stakeholders like the European Investment Bank, Ministers of, of Finance, I'm afraid that in this community we all know the importance of well-being. And it is a positive and it is a protective agenda, which is important in a time of economic crisis, cost of living, energy dependency. But how do we convince the European Investment Bank, Finance Ministers? Exactly. Ifa, do you have the solution for that? No, no, I actually have um, further question from the, for the thinkers here. So the, the, the results of the polls here in the room are inspiring, but it could well be a little bit of uh, preaching to the converted, in right? You did preaching say, to the choir, yeah. Yeah, you did Thank say you. That, uh, that the discussion in Gastein has changed. Well, I'm happy to hear that. This is my first uh, uh, Gastein meeting, so uh, um, happy to hear the things change. Um, but now, how do we take this discussion from this academic discussion, if you want, to the political one? And how do we change the political will? And how do we make our voices heard? 
and how do we con reconcile the interests that are, that are conflicting here? Perfect. Please, panelists, this is very, very important. Uh, maybe Matthias want to reflect on that. Vesna, definitely. All of you, uh, uh, it's you. key because it links very beautifully together. I come back to you. Michael, you are a minister. Were you convincing the other ministers when you were minister <laughs> twice? Well, it's very, very different. That's you what know. we want But you hear. need a good prime minister, first of all, <laughs> you know, and good alliances. But what I it's by voting, sorry. Yeah, we cannot yeah, change yeah. those. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what I wanted to tell, so can European Health Union make a difference? I mean, there has been such a, such a question. Uh, the, my answer is yes. And what you should consider is to speed up the elaboration of minimum criteria, minimum standards for health and well-being. That has been in the original plans. You should think about how to go ahead with this. Thank you. Perfect, thank you. From ex-minister to ex-minister, this case in Lithuania. Yeah, good evening, Just a few ideas. Uh, I was lucky to be 25 years ago in Gastein, and then not every year, but sometimes following discussion. And my feeling, uh, it's a reflection to this, uh, on, on this uh, uh, growth, philosophy of uh, growth. It, even in Gastein, uh, we have seen changes. 25 years ago, health was more, how to say, protective. It was about cost containment, about uh, public-private partnership, how to save costs. Uh, and, and so uh, uh, health uh, <clears throat> people were kind of in, 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 in defensive position. Later on came this idea of health uh, in all policies, again, it's a bit egocentric, I would say, because why others should care about health? Yeah, a bit strange, but an anyway, it, it was a fashion in health community. Now, it looks like we are going further. Now we started to talk about well-being, where you have health, you have education. You understand that it's not just for health, but also for growth, or for environmental. Uh, and also, we are talking about health for all policies, yeah? yes. So I, I, I think that's important, and, and that shows uh, no, changes in, in, in the paradigm yeah, of, of, of understanding. And of course, it will never finish, because health always will compete for resources with other sectors. But I think this is great, that we have progressed, and, and that this uh, uh, forum contributed to it. That's great. And coming from Lithuania, with, uh, with uh, also with Dennis Andriukaitis, another minister and commissioner, push so much health in all policies, you've been leading us. Now we need to start wrapping up quickly. I know I have a couple of questions there. So I'm Clara Volintiro. I'm an economics professor from Bucharest, Romania, and I Are have a solution. you convinced today? Well, I was convinced even before today, but I have... You're a real <laughs> economist then? Yes, a political <laughs> economist. <laughs> no, we've been working a lot on this type of evidence-based policy making, and I think there's an evidence gap. And I think sometimes governments aren't able to lead the change. And uh, talking to what Professor Tervain mentioned, um, I would like to point out that the European Commission is now financing three horizon projects on the post-GDP uh, indicators, yeah. moving beyond GDP indicators. And I think the WHO and other network organizations should broaden that research networks that are being formed in this regard, that, that let's say, peer-to-peer -peer exchange of knowledge. And we should all be part of that conversation, broader conversation. 
Here, here. I go back to you, Martinez. The last one, two more very quickly, and I go back to the panel. Only two, please. Very quickly, please, because I'm wasting the time. All right, thank you. Not you, me. Um, I was uh, wondering uh, about the point from Velimiko. To me, the asking the question which ministries should be included is, I think, al already missing the point. Like, the qu answer would be, like, all the ministries should be included. It's a sort of question of, like, separating which ministries are more important is already sort of, like, diverting the focus of well-being. Everything should be included. Like, all the policies should uh, have the economy of well-being in mind, I think. That's beautiful. I have a thing. The last one is Ricardo. You know what I'm going to say, Ricardo? Are we strengthening the ministers of health like that? Doing that? That's why you, you question. Do you? Uh, well, You're a member of parliament. From Portugal. From Portugal. Good morning. Um, well, the problem, I think, is exactly the question. And it, we were looking at the poll. We were saying, what do we need to do to invest more in the well, economy of well-being? And then all of the, the answers were, we need to invest more in health. But that's part of the problem because we've created this idea that investing in hospitals delivers better health. So actually, I think the problem is within the choir that we need to understand, we need to reopen the discussion and that focusing exclusively on health in this silo approach is leading to worse results in terms of the well-being of the population and to costs that may lead to unsustainability. The second issue is about rethinking growth, as was mentioning, as, as was mentioned. The World Bank has to, once and for all, understand that GDP cannot be the driver of economic growth. We need to have a new indicator to then trickle down in Europe and across the world. That's absolutely perfect. Uh, I have to take mea culpa, mea grandissima culpa, for the question. I wanted on purpose to talk about health co-benefits, but the economy of well-being is not about health co-benefits, but all co-benefits. And certainly it's not investment in hospitals, but much more on the economics of prevention and prevention interventions. Martin, rather than you contributing, what is this magic indicator that we're looking for and we're not much into? Well, I'm going to say something first to that. I, I sometimes feel I'm living in a parallel universe because um, yesterday the IMF said that it was uh, monitoring very closely developments in the United Kingdom and in touch with the authorities because those policies were widening inequalities. The IMF told the British government, a G7 country, that its policies were wrong and it was widening inequalities. I don't know who we need to convince because if we look at books like Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of Canada, Bank of England, in his book Values, it is a public health textbook. If we look at what Mario Draghi has been saying, if we look at what Gordon Brown says in his book Seven Ways to Change the World, we don't need to convince anybody. I mean, these people are convinced. So I don't know why we're all talking to ourselves about all of these things. And President Biden has a new group that is looking at an alternative to GDP. Yes, it's taken a long has time. Has anything changed? Well, it, you always say that, but, but we are, has changed. We well, keep talking. Yeah, sure, you're absolutely right, because you have to recognise, as was said yesterday, there are two big issues, getting Europe through the winter and beating Russia in Ukraine. And that's at the top of everybody's priority. But we do need to look at the longer term. And there are there are a lot of people out there in the finance sector, Sylvie Goulard in the Banque de France, greening the financial sector and so on, who are doing these things okay. while we're talking to ourselves. But there's plenty of evidence, I mean, plenty we're of work out there. Them. Okay, genuine progress indicator, index of sustainable economic welfare, Good. all of these issues, we've been talking about them for at least, I've been talking about them but they're not for implemented, 20 years. Martin. Yeah, but we do have an opportunity. Why but what do you have had an impact but, on well, 20 years? Because the, the, let, let's 
get into the geopolitics of this. We had a real opportunity okay. with the G20, because yes. remember the G20 did act with the Financial Stability Board, Mario Draghi, Mark Carney, after the global financial crisis. And that's why we didn't have a financial crisis during the pandemic. But then you go to Indonesia and you have a problem that Russia is in the room with the G20. And that is the reality. And you were in Tel Aviv with me. The discussion was entirely dominated by the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Geopolitics, so until we sort that out, you know, we, but the, the other discussions are taking place. It's just that we're not, many of us are not engaging with them. I don't think we need to convince the really deep thinkers in the financial sector. They get it. They recognise that. And the fact that the IMF was willing to speak out against the policies of the British government just tells you that we have actually won the battle, but we're just not exploiting it. Perfect. Geopolitics and stop moaning, stop moaning and go out there, go out there, go out there. Okay, I'm running late. Sorry, sorry. You knew that when you hired me. So... <laughs> Very quickly, how are we going to answer all that? So I don't know how we're going to answer all that. Uh, but let me start with you, Otto. I mean, this system that uh, knows better about you than your wife, mm. can we apply it to the economy of well-being? I mean, you heard a lot about India. You must be really happy today. You're a pure economist. Mm. Can, you, can we offer these people real indicators? Martin says they are there. I think there are still a few more to convince that community. So uh, We can go out there to preach. Uh, we can go out to preach. Uh, I, I think rather than a single indicator, what's important is we collect data for every question we face to give the best answer to each of those questions one by one. And in every country. And in every country. Excellent. Any views on the European Health Union? I'll ask you then later. Vesna, on the issue of accountability, I think it became very clear, the evidence accountability, all very much aligning to your vote. On the issue of accountability and government, I always ask you this question. No, but, <laughs> okay. Uh, look, uh, accountability is something that I'm a little bit worried about because we want to have others accountable and we feel like we cannot do much and we are not accountable to many things. But actually how it works is everybody in his own roles, because we are even in the role of a citizen, of uh, participating in the local community, there at our job positions, when we are voting, we are also accountable, you know, so in our roles, we need to question uh, ourselves, you know, uh, am I accountable uh, for this or that? And for example, I, uh, I'm always worried when the researchers think they are only accountable for their research to be done appropriately. Um, uh, and this is de definitely not the fact, uh, because I have colleagues who have 10 uh, books uh, back in their office, and they say, this is what I have done. And I say, it doesn't help me much, you know, unless you tell me exactly what is in there, and you spread the message, and start working with those people on the ground, uh, and let them know, you know, uh, why it matters. The second thing I, I would like to say now is, I heard this, show me the money. I hate this. Yeah, but I hate this, sorry. because. When I started my career, okay. I was with such a limited budget for such big deal things like all the policies in public health and so on. Money is not everything. Yes, we go for money when we exactly know what we want to do, but much more important things, and yesterday I was very surprised, money, money was the biggest thing on the screen, and political will was such a big deal thing on the screen. This is not being accountable. I don't have money, I don't have political will, so nothing can be done. 
I did many things in my career just because I count on leadership, I count on uh, re, uh, networking very much, you know, and I also um, uh, think that it's uh, leadership and networking is not enough. You need courage. And I was so much appreciated when I saw courage and leadership also there. Networking was not there, but networking is super important if Perfect. you want to do something. So apart from, in addition of a Martin McKee in your life, you have to put a Vesna Petrich in your life as well. Yes. More activism there, thank you. Let me go now to Velimiko. Velimiko, we talked accountability, we talked about these difficult ministers in your board, as well as the European Health Union, which i like, Caroline, to say something about. But Velimiko, first you. Thank you. Hope you hear me. Yes, we do. Great. Uh, since I, I think that we are already uh, out of our time, I will put my message on only in, in, let's say, two phrases. I think the message from here is clearly that, uh, first of all, to, to be successful, we need to speak the same language that is over uh, ministries, but the, the, this is also concerning uh, administration and the civil society and so on. And to speak same language, I think we must learn a new language. We must develop a new language. It should not be Finnish, of course. It's difficult. Why but, not? <laughs> but uh, it, it is something where we can speak uh, the same language with economists, with, uh, with uh, health sector specialists, uh, with uh, normal people uh, from, from the public. That's my message. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. You didn't go into European Health Union. So... European Health Union and double Joe, of course. I mean, can these organizations do a bit more on this? Well, the, you work a lot I with think, both of them, you know yes, that well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are a real opportunity at the European Union level. Uh, there will be a new European Parliament elections in uh, 2024. And I find at the moment uh, Europe is sort of drifting. There is no overarching strategy with clear targets where the European Union wants to uh, go. I mean, we have the European Health Union, but that's a very small part of the story. We have the European Green Deal. You have the European Pillar of Social Rights. But it's still sort of fragmented. And I feel you Europe is indeed drifting in all these crises, and I think we need to argue for clear targets towards the 2024 elections, and then with economy of well-being in mind, and with all the data and all the evidence that we are collecting and still be collecting. Maybe well-being can win votes, you know? I think so. I do think so. That's it's in the treaty. It's Article 3 of the treaty. It's very strong, and I think it is definitely a good narrative that we have to work on politically, but uh, I do see an opportunity there for sure. I think we sell it like that. It's going to work very well. Very quickly, Chris and Matthias, very quickly on the evidence, very quickly on these indicators. One sentence from Chris, and Matthias, you'll give you the last one before our moderator. Chris. Let Matthias go first, because I don't want to answer that question. You don't want to answer a question. Okay, it makes it easy then. No, no, I, have an, I have another response. Let me see. Thank you so much. So I don't talk about the big composite indicators because we have already plenty of indicators. If you think about the framework of the sustainable development goals, there we have very clear goals which are kind of aligned to, to sectors. And they have a lot of targets, you know, and you can say, okay, these targets are not fitting exactly my country, but you can specify this. And that would be actually an intersectoral policy. And then you can check, you know, whether my policy is also helping the others, is, co is creating co-benefits. And you would still be responsible for your policy and the other sector would be responsible for the other sector, but they could check whether it helps or is maybe detrimental 
to um, the, my, my, my goals, and then there would be negotiation and try to mitigate this. So that would resolve also the accountability problem. Thank you so much. Kiitos paljon. Uh, I think it's time to finish and wrap up. Uh, we can continue. Those who are in the room, we can continue the discussion maybe over coffee. But I really would like to thank you for participating. I would like to thank our panelists of the great points you brought uh, in uh, the room today and also our online um, participants for their great uh, input. So thank you and enjoy your day. <laughs>